Welcome to the Healthy Human uh, Revolution podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marvis, and today I'm so honored and thankful to have Dr. Casey Means with us. How are you today? I'm great. How are you, Lori? Very good. Thank you. So Dr. Means or Casey has a really interesting story, and she's young and vibrant and energetic and definitely going to be a leader amongst us as she grows in her, her new specialty. But we want to get into this a little bit. I always like to ask doctors, tell us a little bit about your history and why you went into medicine to begin with, and then just tell us how your, your path maybe took a little bit of a change. Sure. Um, so I, um, I decided to, uh, I, I was not one of those people who grew up and was like, oh, I want to, you know, I'm definitely going to be a doctor. Um, there are no doctors in my family. And I uh, went to Stanford for undergrad and I started out um, thinking that I wanted to be a biomechanical engineer. And I just thought the body was the most beautiful, you know, machine. And I just wanted to learn everything about it. And there was a lot of really interesting interdisciplinary collaboration going on at Stanford between the engineering and the uh, departments in the hospital and the life sciences. And I thought that was super fascinating. Um, and, you know, I remember um, in my first biology class uh, seeing that like computer animation of um, ATP synthase at the end of the electron transport chain. And it's like this perfect little rotary motor, you know, on the mitochondrial membrane that's powered by protons, you know, similar like how electricity is powered by electrons and thinking like this perfect little machine is like how all life functions and how, he, and if it stops, like we'll die. And I just loved that. And so... So I was really kind of in that engineering mindset, but then I started taking some genetics and realized, oh gosh, like this is, this is really exciting to me. Um, and I sort of started shifting gears and thinking more about um, pre-med and that, you know, physicians were actually really kind of the engineers of the human body. And I kind of moved away from thinking device development and things like that and more into like, wow, physicians get to, to think um, on this engineering level about cellular biology and about cellular functioning and physiology. And that, you know, really added this whole personal component to me that was fascinating. And so I shifted gears into pre-med, you know, midway through college and just loved my biology classes and decided to go um, in that direction. And um, so, you know, genetics was kind of always my, my passion. Um, and then went to medical school, um, and um, I, uh, you know, loved all of the curriculum, everything I was learning, and ultimately kind of landed on surgery. And um, I thought, you know, surgery was, I had a lot of energy, and I liked, it was very, you know, um, active, and thought, you know, surgery was this great blend of being able to be on your feet and really kind of you know, multitask. And, you know, I really was attracted to that whole concept of, you know, a surgeon gets to go in and fix something, you know, you get to go in and definitively kind of take something out. And that was really attractive to me. And so kind of got exposed to all the surgical subspecialties, um, in my, um, clinical rotations and ultimately decided on ear, nose, and throat, otolaryngology, head and neck surgery. Um, and, um, went down that route. And so I uh, applied to residency um, and got into a residency up here in Portland, Oregon, where I live now, and, um, and uh, started that in 2014. And, you know, as I was going along in surgery, like I was, you know, fascinated by the disease process that we were studying. And I really enjoyed 
the surgeries, but what I started to kind of realize during my time there was that I was um, becoming a little increasingly disillusioned by a number of things I was seeing, you know, working in the hospitals. And um, it, the first thing really had to do with that, that concept that I mentioned of like, uh, you know, surgeons fix things. And, you know, what I realized was actually kind of what I was feeling like in the operating room is that I wasn't sort of fixing or curing things, but I was kind of just like weed whacking, you know, like it was just sort of like, um, brute force kind of like, uh, taking out a problem once it had really gone off the rails and was almost more like, um, you know, symptom management, but not actually fixing the underlying process that led to disease. And so I kind of was reflecting on that a lot. You know, I'd be in the operating room with a patient who had chronic sinusitis, or we'd be cleaning out the sinuses and opening them up, or I'd be there with a small, you know, 18-month-old child with pus in their middle ears and recurrent acute otitis media, and we'd be putting ear tubes in and, you know, cleaning out the pus, or a patient with um, subglottic stenosis, tracheal stenosis, and we'd be dilating them and for an underlying autoimmune disease that they had, like um, Wegener's granulomatosis. And I'd be just sitting there in the operating room thinking, you know, we're kind of just putting a Band-Aid on these issues. And, um, you know, we're stretching out the airway, but it's she's going to be back for another procedure or we're cleaning out the sinuses. But, you know, this is the third surgery. Like, what is actually leading to the mucosal inflammation that's causing the recurrent sinusitis. You know, in the child, what's predisposing them to have sort of this immune dysfunction that's leading to recurrent ear infections? And why does this woman with subglottic stenosis have an autoimmune condition? Why is her body fighting, um, you know, her own cells and creating this scarring? And so, you know, I'm sitting there operating and just kind of reflecting on these things. And around that time, um, I was also reading um, some other sort of books in the more like functional and integrative medicine space. I was reading Andrew Wheel's books, um, Mind Over Meds, and Dr. Mark Hyman, who's a functional medicine doctor, um, like The Ultramind Solution, and Sarah Gottfried's The Hormone Cure, and all these books that were kind of, they were just, you know, kind of things I was picking up, and, and I was sort of having all these experiences in the operating room, and I realized, and those are doctors who really are approaching things from this like root cause perspective that I was thinking about. And I came across um, Dean Ornish and a lot of his studies about um, reversing coronary artery disease. And so he, he just published a book called Undo It, but he's been this leader in this field of um, basically looking at lifestyle and nutritional interventions for coronary artery disease and has published some incredible papers, as you know, and probably a lot of listeners do, that a plant-based diet and some environmental or some lifestyle um, interventions like stress management um, can truly reverse the blockages in coronary arteries. Mm-hmm. And, um, in, in, in a way that no medication actually can. And so I was thinking, you know, it's so ironic that if you do a coronary artery bypass surgery, a cabbage, you know, a heart surgeon is kind of considered a hero. And yet if you recommend dietary interventions or dietary strategies to a patient, it's sort of considered weak. It's like a throwaway. And yet to cure and truly fix a disease, you have to go with the nutritional and lifestyle interventions. And really the cabbage, the coronary artery bypass surgery, which is heroic, is just a Band-Aid. 
it's not actually changing any of the underlying physiology. So all of this was kind of going on in the milieu of my brain. And um, it was just starting to kind of, I, I, whereas I thought that I was going to feel heroic and going to feel great being a surgeon, I actually was starting to feel almost like impotent. Like I'm not fixing anything. Like, and I feel bad because I want to go down these other routes like that Dean Ornish was talking about and stuff. But there's really not, you don't learn about that stuff. You know, we're not learning about dietary interventions for sinusitis, recurrent acutotitis media, or autoimmune diseases. And I don't feel like I have the knowledge to, to address that stuff. So, um, I mean, I could go on and on, but I, mm-hmm. there, was, there was one particular patient kind of that really I think was um, kind of the nail in the coffin for me in terms of being in conventional um, medicine, which was a patient I saw in my uh, fifth year of residency. She was a uh, migraine patient and I was the chief on the otology service, which deals with ears. And um, we see a lot of migraine patients because um, we want to rule out that there's sort of an inner ear disorder um, or a neurotology reason for these symptoms. Um, And, you know, she came in, she was in her mid-30s, she was on about five psychoactive medications, antidepressants, migraine medications, anxiety medications, abortive migraine therapy, was wearing sunglasses, had a service dog, had home health nursing, was totally debilitated by her migraines and seen neurologists. ENTs, MRIs, and she shows up in my ENT chief clinic, and I'm like, what in the world am I going to do for this person? I, I, I'm the youngest and, like, the least experienced of anyone she's seen. She had 200 pages of chart notes. So I walk in, and I'm just like, I'm just going to talk to her. And as I was reviewing her history, I kind of offhanded said, like, you know, oh, I'm sure you've tried a migraine elimination diet, you know, and that, I'm guessing that didn't work. And she's like, no, I've never heard of that. And I was like, oh, uh, okay, well, we can talk about it a little bit. And I knew very little, but I knew that like there are migraine trigger foods. And so we kind of talked about that a little bit. And I realized I was just sort of like, how has no one mentioned this? Like there's data to support this and she is debilitated and it's never been brought up. So that really, I didn't feel like I knew enough about it. I gave her a handout and whatnot, but I went and researched, I did a huge PubMed literature search that night. I stayed up like all night on all nutritional and dietary interventions for migraine. And it was like a lot of papers with amazing data. And it was so satisfying to me to see like, okay, the information is out there. I need to learn this. I feel a lot better about helping in this way. And, um, and so that was kind of, again, one of those things was like, I kind of felt like my calling was somewhere else and in the clinic room and the operating room and in the ENT clinic. And so ultimately, long story short, I actually, um, I left my residency in my beginning of my fifth and final year of residency, um, which was, you know, a big decision. Um, many, many people asked me, you know, you had such a short amount of time. Why didn't you finish? And um, ultimately for me, um, I was faced with, uh, that's the time in residency when you have to choose, you know, a, a job and take a job offer. And, you know, you do it about a year in advance. And I had a couple of job opportunities coming in and I just could not 
signed the contracts because it was going to be tons of operating, really high volume, patient care. And it just felt like it was going to be more of the same. And so I knew I had another year of residency and I really had to take a job. And so that was going to be at least another year. And then it's about a year post-residency when you take your board certification, your oral boards and your written boards. And so it was really looking more like a two-year decision if I didn't stop then. And I had just turned 30 and, you know, I decided I'm going to, I need to go in this other direction of prevention, um, integrative, you know, and, fu- and functional medicine. And I am not going to wait another two years to sort of start that path. That's really what I felt like my calling was and how I could like truly be a fixer and a healer. And so I left and I got additional training with the Institute for Functional Medicine and I've started a functional medicine private practice in Portland. And, you know, I'm seeing a lot of the same conditions that I saw when I was an ENT and approaching them from a completely different way. And it's been really amazing. Um, (laughs) And I just feel so empowered. And what's really funny circling back to pre-med and why I went into medicine is that this is actually allowing me to, to get back that genetic level in such an exciting way because to me what is so intellectually exciting about functional medicine is that it's looking at a root cause perspective for health it's looking at what is underlying disease the diseases or conditional imbalances functional imbalances in the body and a a symptom or a disease is what springs up when there's underlying biologic dysfunction and functional medicine looks at that level what is the biologic dysfunction and how do we actually fix it at that level versus just put band-aids on the symptoms, but not actually fix the underlying cause. And with all this new research in network biology and systems biology, um, through our advances in genetic sequencing and whole genome sequencing, we are now realizing that there are very common underlying pathways that are underlying many seemingly disparate diseases. Um, For instance, you know, arthritis, sinusitis, diabetes, heart disease, and asthma, all have overactivation of the NF-kappa-B genetic pathway, which is an inflammatory pathway, a sort of master regulator gene. We also know that many uh, nutritional interventions and lifestyle interventions can very effectively quell the NF-kappa-B pathway. So the whole thing is kind of linking back together. um, And I think the more we learn in genetics and the more complexity we learn with big data and systems biology and network medicine, the more we're realizing that the interventions are actually the best ones are the simplest ones Mm -hmm. that that are heavy hitting. So that's my story. And, you know, that's sort of the broad overview of, you know, going into medicine and then really shifting gears. But I think, um, you know, it's an exciting time for this, this type of, you know, approach. So. Well, I think this is a really good case of where someone had the courage to make that decision to go into the true calling of medicine, which is healing. So you wanted to heal. You didn't want to be just, like you said, the weed whacker, but you're going to the root cause, genetics, cellular biology, all these amazing things that we just ignore. Once we leave and we go into our specialties, we, you know, if you're not doing surgery, you're writing prescriptions and, you know, getting your family, your patient out of their family practice clinic or internal medicine or whatever, or you're sending them for more testing that would be lead to more interventions, usually some type of surgical intervention or something like that. So it's truly, I mean, it's mind blowing that someone had the courage to do that because I'm not sure too many people would. And it's wonderful that you found the path that's going to lead 
to actually helping a lot more people long-term longevity and all those things. So kudos to you for doing Thank that. Thank you. Amazing. <laughs> and so now you are open for business in Portland, Oregon, one of my favorite cities, yeah. I went to University of Portland. And um, so tell us what would a patient expect? So what, what is functional medicine, I guess? So can you speak to that for a little bit? And what would a patient expect when they walk into a functional medicine provider's office? Like, what's the approach? What are the questions? How is it different from a different, you know, a, a traditional, uh, you know, MD's office? What, what is that difference? You, yeah. you mentioned, you hit it on a little bit, but what would be your, yeah. your initial steps? Well, um, it is very, a very different experience. Um, so coming into a function, so functional medicine, like I mentioned, is a field of medicine that's looking at um, the root cause of illness and trying to uh, look at uh, disease as um, not just the manifestation of the disease and the symptoms, but what is going on underlying under under the surface that's causing cellular biologic dysfunction that's leading to poor um, you know outcomes for the patient. And so, it really draws on a very evidence based. Um, body of knowledge relating to things I mentioned like systems biology and network biology and underlying genetic and physiologic pathways that underlie the majority of chronic disease. And we're now just realizing that there's lots of these shared pathways. And one way I like to think about it is, you know, conventional medicine is really looking at diseases as individual silos. So arthritis is a disease and heart disease is a disease and prostate cancer is a disease and they're silos. They're not, they're not related. Um, and so when you look at it that way, um, you treat them individually and health is the absence of disease. Um, and it's a very diseased focused model mm -hmm. moving into functional medicine, which I would consider what I just mentioned as sort of 20th century medicine and given what we know now about systems biology moving into 21st century medicine, functional medicine looks at disease as a web and a very interconnected web um, where there are all these lines connecting diseases that may be inflammation pathways, genetic pathways, this and that. And so as opposed to silos, it's a web. And now what you start doing is you shift into, you know, health is not the absence of disease. Health is optimized functioning of the body and then on a bigger level optimize functioning of the patient it's a much more patient-centered model and um it as opposed to specialty specific medical care it's much more holistic a functional medicine provider can't be just ent focused because learning about all the other symptoms that the patient has and all the other sort of disease manifestations they have those are all clues to what might be actually going on under the surface. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, for instance, I um, saw a patient a few weeks ago who came in for the primary concern of eczema, um, which is, um, you know, a skin manifestation of immune system dysregulation. The immune system is sort of attacking the skin. Um, it's not, I think, technically classified as an autoimmune disease, but the body is sort of reacting in an aberrant way, the immune system. And um, with our functional in medicine intake paperwork, which is extensive, going over every system of the body, it's, it takes about an hour to fill out my online intake paperwork. Um, 
you know, he had probably 25 other small symptoms going on in his body, but a lot of GI complaints, a little bit of constipation, diarrhea, some anal itching, um, some anxiety, um, a little bit of gastric reflux, some post-nasal drip. So a lot having to do with the overall aerodigestive tract, a little bit of neuro stuff. And, you know, he would have probably never mentioned that if he'd gone to just a dermatologist's office for the eczema. But because we talked about it, it was asked, you know, I'm starting to think really that a lot of these skin issues may be originating in the gut. And there may be some, because of diet and lifestyle and dysbiosis, some increased intestinal permeability going on, which is leading to some systemic immune activation. Um, there may be some fungal overgrowth. He had a lot of toe fungus. He had anal itching. There might be some like candidiasis going on and other fungal um, stuff. And so we really ended up approaching a skin issue very much through the gut. How are we going to get your microbiome back on track, get your intestinal permeability or leaky gut sealed up, get your colon um, barrier nice and tight and all those tight junctions functioning properly so that your immune system isn't seeing all the junk from the gut, getting triggered and causing your skin issue. And, you know, he had great outcomes. And so we did a lot of um, food allergy testing and elimination diet, um, gave him tons of prebiotics and probiotics um, to, you know, help with his micro microbial diversity in his gut, um, uh, gave him glutamine to help feed his colonocytes, gave him a lot of omega-3s in order to decrease his overall inflammatory response. Um, the prebiotic foods like, you know, Jerusalem artichoke and lots of different high fiber starches um, to feed his beneficial bacteria. So we produce, you know, these short chain fatty acids like butyrate that are going to help his gut lining be better, like very multifaceted approach. And, you know, didn't really touch the skin, like didn't give him a topical steroid, no oral steroids, because ultimately a steroid is just, which he'd been on a million, of course, um, is just a band-aid. It's not actually, it's an anti-inflammatory on the back end but we were doing anti-inflammatory on the front end so that it's a lasting fix. So that's just an example to kind of show what the process is like. So a patient would make an appointment with me. Um, they would go onto my website, fill out my application for consultation, which gives me some information about what they're looking for. Um, I would schedule a 15 minute call with them to basically see what they're thinking, what they're hoping, um, whether I think I could help. Um, and then they come in for a two hour initial visit. And I'm happy to review any of their outside records. And again, I give them, I've created um, this very extensive online intake paperwork that I make, I ask people to do 72 hours before our visit so that I have time to start doing a little bit of thinking and linking so that we can optimize our time in the visit. Mm -hmm. And actually my, what I like to do is actually put all of their symptoms on a big whiteboard and then start, and I use that as an education tool in, in my visit. And so we can start seeing like, okay, well, these 10 things you mentioned all are related to the gut. And these 15 things you mentioned all have to do with immune activation. And these eight things all seem to have to do with your neural neurosystem. And so linking some of the stuff that a patient may have not put together, like how is my constipation related to my acid reflux and seeing it very visually. So they fill out that paperwork. I start thinking about it. I have them fill out a three-day food journal for me as well um, and, a, and a lifestyle and activity journal. Um, and then we have our two-hour initial visit. And um, during that visit, we do a lot of uh, more talking, um, 
I start doing a little bit of linking and telling them what I think may be going on under the surface. That's linking a lot of their, their symptoms and conditional imbalances. And then um, for some patients, I recommend some functional medicine lab work. And so there's a lot of really neat advanced testing that we don't learn about in medical school, but that is very standard practice for functional medicine, integrative practitioners, naturopathic doctors, things like um, food allergy testing, um, advanced lipid testing. Um, there's testing that can look for micronutrient levels, um, antioxidant capacity, omega-3 and omega-6 ratios, and things that all are evidence-based, um, have a lot of evidence to them for how we can use them as you know, clinically relevant tools. Um, we test insulin levels um, for patients who may have some evidence of metabolic uh, dysfunction and can be a harbinger of diabetes down the road. Um, you know, as you know, insulin resistance is the first step in the pathway to diabetes, yet we don't ever check insulin levels really in standard practice, and those can go up way before your blood sugar is actually a problem. Um, so I love the lab testing, but I don't force patients to do that. There's a lot you can do without that information that's really basic, like in terms of diet and nutritional strategies um, and lifestyle. But I sometimes will recommend labs. Um, and then we usually, those take about, um, you know, three to four weeks to get back and then we'll have follow-ups. And then patients can either see me kind of in an on-demand way with on-demand follow-up visits or can join more of a six-month membership program where I'm really with them every step of the way to transform their health. Um, and so that's, that's how my practice runs. Awesome. So they can really expect <laughs> literally to pull back every layer of the onion until they get to the heart of the matter. And so, wow, that's a great way. I love that you incorporate this questionnaire and give yourself time to visualize it because that mapping approach works really well for any type of difficult or hard to understand system because that's when you start seeing those groupings and those interconnections when you can see it visually. I used mapping a lot when I was in medical school and college doing different classes. So that's brilliant, excellent. Um, so... <clears throat> Now, there may be some question, excuse me, when it comes to diet, um, you know, people, they understand that I'm a whole food plant-based diet. Can you share us your, your thoughts on diet and inflammation? Because this really is, everything that you're describing goes, mm, there's always some key of inflammation gunking up something. So can you describe what the functional medicine approach is to diet and inflammation or what you would recommend to, to patients, especially those ones, you know, we're entering into seasonal allergies. You know, now we have people that are calling in with eczema. I know what I do, but I'd love to hear how your approach is to that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, this is my favorite topic because, you know, food is really my, my passion um, and food is medicine gets me so excited. And again, it ties back to genetics because food is the primary information that we are putting into our bodies from the outside world. And it literally is going into our bodies, our bloodstreams acting uh, on our cells um, as information and instructions to our cellular receptors and our genes of what to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're learning more and more that our genes are not our destiny, that epigenetics and transcription factors um, and intracellular signaling pathways are very much affected by what goes in our mouth and what foods we eat. 
and that those actually turn on and off genes and are the levers to tell our blueprint what to do. So like food becomes this extremely exciting thing of like, this is a tool to literally turn on and off my genes and like create the outcomes that I want to achieve. So nutritional biochemistry, I think is totally the future and people are starting to catch on to it. But, um, I, I think it's so, so cool. Um, and I hope that patients thinking about food as information is kind of empowering and motivating to them. I know it is for me. So in terms of diet in general, though, I am a whole foods plant-based person. I am vegan. And this is relatively new for me, actually. Um, I, so everything we talked about, I left my residency September of 2018. So this is not a long, long time ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, seven months. So a lot has happened since then. Um, but uh, I became vegan right after I left residency. Um, and it was really from reading literature. It was from reading the data. And I just was like, this is the only path that I see as being like universally the healthy path. And you kind of can't argue with the data, although people do, obviously. Um, I was actually watching an interview last night of Dr. Garth Davis, who you've interviewed before Mm -hmm. when he was on the TV show at the doctors. (laughs) And, you know, I don't know, have you seen that clip? I've seen, he's been on a few times, yeah. It's terrible because, you know, he is so data focused and his book, Proteinaholic, is amazing. So many references. And, you know, they were just attacking him brutally about, in a sort of pro-meat way. And he's like, Mm -hmm. you can't fight about, like, in the data, you know? And so I love good discussion, but like, I'm, I really feel like the data for reversal and prevention of chronic disease always leads us back to plants. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... The reason it really came up for me was I have a close family member with type 2 diabetes. And as the only doctor in my family, I felt like it was really my responsibility to like figure out what the best actual diet. There's so much conflicting information, low carb, keto, you know, not a lot of people are pushing the plant-based uh, diet for diabetes because it is a lot of fruit, which has sugar and a lot of carbohydrates from plants. Mm-hmm. But the large meta-analyses show that the biggest reversal of the decrease in hemoglobin A1C comes from a purely vegan diet. And even adding in one serving of animal protein per week can decrease the drop in A1C. And there were, there was one study with a lot of patients that looked at 12 weeks of a vegan diet, which is relatively high carb and does have sugar from fruit. And, um, they had over a one point drop in hemoglobin A1C, I believe over 12 weeks, although I'm not hundred I need to look back, but, um, and those who were eating like a conventional healthy meat animal protein diet, it was like minus 0.2, you know, percent. So it's, you know, it seemed pretty clear to me. And, um, this family member went on the whole foods plant-based diet, just packing their diet with healthy fats, um, healthy, you know, vegetables, cooking all their food from scratch. And, in three months, this family member's hemoglobin A1C dropped from um, 7.9 to 7.1. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's, fan- it's very close to getting back into normal. Um, mm-hmm. From an inflammation perspective, um, you know, getting back to what I was mentioning with, you know, the NF-kappa B pathway, like there are, which is a master inflammatory regulatory gene, their plant products literally go into the cell and can down-regulate 
the expression of NF-kappa B and its, its downstream mediators. So things like garlic, turmeric, green tea, boswellia, um, uh, uh, citrus flavonoids, um, all of these have been shown to decrease inflammatory pathway activation. And it's like, we all know those things are healthy, like oranges are healthy, green tea is healthy, pomegranate is healthy, but it's actually molecular. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's, so from a genetic pathway, it's, it's one thing. The second thing that I think is huge and functional medicine really focuses on is our fat profile. So, you know, omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acid levels are becoming kind of a hot topic, at least in the world that I live in. But, um, Omega-6s, you know, can generally be thought of as animal-derived fats, and omega-3s are generally um, more plant-derived, but also from, like, um, uh, salmon, anchovy, sardines. Um, But you think about, so omega-3s, walnut, flaxseed, chia, um, and those small fish, and then um, omega-6s, more like beef, poultry. I think chicken has one of the highest contents. of arachidonic acid, which is a downstream uh, in the omega-6 pathway. But um, it used to be that humans historically were getting like a one-to-one ratio of omega-6s to omega-3s. And now in our conventional American diets, we are getting 25 to one of omega-6 to omega-3s. And we know that omega-6s are broken down into things like arachidonic acid, and that those can actually turn into inflammatory um, mediators like leukotrienes and prostaglandins that literally promote pain and inflammation in the body. And so you're looking at these pathways, you know, of like, okay, chicken, arachidonic acid, leukotrienes and prostaglandins, pain. And like, Advil blocks that pathway to production of some of these mediators. I'm like, why would you take Advil if you could just stop eating chicken? Mm -hmm. And it just seems crazy to me. And then, you know, the omega-3s are very protective against inflammation. And um, so I'm fascinated by the fatty acid profiles. And, you know, I think these days when you test omega-3s to omega-6s, we're looking for a ratio of less than four to one. Standard diet, 25 to one these days historically one to one, but at least getting down towards like four to one Mm. is lower risk. And so I really talk to patients a lot about fats. And then I think the third component is just general gut health. Um, So we're learning more and more that our diet is not helping our colon function well. We We have a low fiber diet, which hurts our colon. And we're eating a lot of processed foods that and foods with antibiotics and pesticides, which are hurting our beneficial uh, microbiota. And so our colon lining is now all tattered and not healthy and not tight. And so all these food products are getting through the colon into the bloodstream and causing an immune reaction. Whereas if that, um, you know, colon lining were tight and healthy, those things would never be getting into the bloodstream. And so when you think about the gut as this sort of entryway towards inflammation, um, we're starting to realize that, you know, of course, autoimmune diseases are skyrocketing. Of course, inflammatory related chronic diseases are skyrocketing. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone's gut is, is sort of <laughs> messed up and, mm-hmm. um, inflammatory bowel disease. And, um, we're even learning now that dementia and cognitive decline may have a neuroinflammatory component to it. So I really focus on the gut in every patient, every single person can, can do something to get their gut lining better. 
with food is first. I always focus on foods that are going to feed the good bacteria in the gut, but then sometimes some supplementation is necessary too, like, um, probiotics, um, omega-3s in higher doses through like supplementation, um, and glutamine, which again is like feeds the colonocytes. And so, but always, always food first. And so I think if you can attack, um, you know, your, your, your fatty acid, uh, profile, your gut, um, and decrease meat, which just directly causes inflammatory mediators, you're on a good path towards kind of getting inflammation down. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of other things. I mean, you know, like we could go into, but it's, it's, um, plant-based is going to give you all those things Mm -hmm. in spades, phytonutrients, antioxidants, fiber, omega-3 fats, and prebiotics. Mm -hmm. So why I, that's, that's where I've landed. (laughs) Well, I think it's, I really like how you said, well, you know, this is new, but I dove into the data and you walked where the data led. And now you're seeing these huge benefits, even with your patients, even early in your career. But I will, you know, I've been doing the plant-based nutrition with patients for seven years now. And so if we have physicians or if we have people here that are listening and going, where do I even begin? You start with just whole foods and you don't necessarily, like you had mentioned, you said, we don't have to do the testing, but this is how I approach it because I have a, a much shorter time frame with patients. And, you know, I'm like, listen, here's what I want you eating. It's, it's, if it's a plant, great. If it's not, don't eat it. So, you know, if it had a face or came from a face, let's start there. And unless they're diabetic or hypertensive, then we have to be very careful because they can get better so quickly. You know, and I was like, let's see how you do. Let's just start with the gut, like you said, food. And then whatever shakes out, we'll deal with there. And then that leads me down the more specific pathways. So like you said, I take a very broad approach to the gut, get things moving in the right direction. And many, many, many times that will be enough. Um, but then for others, it, you still may need to do a few other things. But yeah, I love it that you, you let science dictate. Dr. Kim Williams, he says, you know, there are cardiologists and then there are cardiologists that are plant-based. And the only difference is, you know, the plant-based cardiologists have read the science and the others haven't. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, I may have rehashed that a little bit, but, um, that's basically, you know, exactly what you're saying. The science has led us to believe, um, your shows that the gut is really the base of so many, many things. And patients love hearing that, honestly, um, because, you know, some doctors will go, oh, patients just want a pill. They don't, they don't want to take the time to get better. I was like, I actually haven't experienced that. You know, I'll have a few patients who are just like, give me a pill, whatever. But for the majority they want to feel better and they want to thrive and they want to live a life that they can only dream of. But when you put that little dangle in front of like, here's a different future or there's this future that you're still heading down. They know that one all too well. They've seen people die and have heart attacks, but there's a different future for you. It's just a small change in how you look at food. And like you said, it's information for the body. So that's brilliant. So as far as any suggestions, what you'd mentioned you know, some of the things, your favorite things to, to talk about. Well, let's talk about what do you eat in a day? Because I often get this question, like, what do they eat every day? What do they do? <laughs> like, oh, I get that question a lot, at least for myself. It's like, well, what do you eat, Dr. Marvis? So tell us, what do you eat on a normal day? What What is on your plate? Yeah. So um, it's so funny. I'm going to show you because I have my oh. computer resting on my salad for lunch today. So 
that. Beautiful. My yeah. giant salad, which has, um, I'll give you a full demo. So I've got a bunch of organic um, red cabbage. Um, I've got some roasted um, butternut squash, tons of um, organic mixed greens, um, avocado, um, and then I just poured um, organic tahini and uh, Bragg's liquid aminos on top, and then there's some red onion in there. So I come to work every day, <laughs> my little computer stands right now, <laughs> Um, every day with a giant salad, um, I shoot for at least 10 servings of vegetables a day, um, fruits and vegetables. Um, but, uh, really it's vegetables for every meal. One of the first shifts I think a patient can do, um, is think about vegetables for breakfast. I always include veggies for breakfast and it gets my day started off right. And that can be anything, you know, your leftovers from the night before, I will often eat a salad for breakfast. Um, I'll eat steamed vegetables for breakfast. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it doesn't have to be this conventional, like it's gotta be sweet and it's gotta be like beige colored. And you know, why, like who said, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so I usually, um, and also if anyone wants to see exactly what I eat, I have my, I have a vegan food Instagram, um, which is at kitchen and I put pictures of stuff that I eat mainly to get people kind of inspired um of like oh that looks like a meal and it's 100% plants and what I like to do in my descriptions I'll usually review one or two papers on like um showing some evidence about why the nutrients in that food that I'm eating actually affect health um and I'll go into some of like the genetic and physiologic pathways of why like eating butternut squash and like the particular antioxidant profile of that vegetable, how it affects your detoxification pathways and, and stuff like that. Um, and so, um, yeah, so usually like some sort of, you know, salad or, um, like sauteed vegetables for breakfast. Um, I usually always carry a small bag of nuts around with me wherever I go, usually walnuts, almonds, um, so that I always like have something in case I get hungry that usually has some sort of omega-3 uh, fat. Um, I will eat um, usually another big salad for lunch. Um, I am really trying to avoid any non-whole foods. So I've stopped using oil in my salad dressings. And now I'm really trying to stick with things like tahini, which is blended sesame seeds instead of using sesame oil, which is like the refined sesame version. And so when you realize that like the actual sesame itself has hundreds of other chemicals in it, little phytonutrients, which I call little medicines that are going into your cells and affecting genetic pathways. I don't want to eat the oil anymore. I want to just eat I want to eat everything that nature made for me to help my body. And so I stick with, with the, the whole food version. Um, so I'll mix, I'll, instead of using avocado oil, I'll blend avocado, really ripe avocado into a dressing. And then I'm getting all that other stuff. So I'm thinking a lot about that these days. Um, and then for dinner, I usually do something a little bit more elaborate. Like, um, you know, I use a lot of like shirataki mushroom noodles to create stir fries. Um, I love the cookbook Veganomicon um, by Issa Vegan what? Veganomicon. Veganomicon? Veganomicon. Yeah, it's it's on Amazon. It's amazing. And you spell it for me? 
Yeah, it's V-E-G-A-N-O-M-I-C-O-N. By Isa Chandra. Oh, wow. By who? Isa, I-S-A Chandra, C-H-A-N-D-R-A. Um, I also love, I make a lot of Indian food because there's a lot of um, vegan Indian food and I use my Instant Pot and my slow cooker um, and I love the website Vegan Risha, <laughs> R-I-C-H-A. Um, she has lots of plant-based Indian recipes. Um, and so like last night I made a soy curl and uh, lent and garbanzo bean butter chicken, um, which had like a whole onion, a whole can of garbanzo beans, some organic non-GMO soy curls, three tomatoes, lots of garlic, um, a cashew cream of cashew blended with water and the Vitamix, which makes, uh, you pour that into the Instant Pot, and it makes it really creamy. It's like a million servings of vegetables and just looks so fancy and beautiful. And then I usually serve it with uh, any of these saucy sort of like Indian dishes with cauliflower rice. So I just throw a head of cauliflower in my Cuisinart, cook it on the stove with some curry or garam masala or coriander, um, no oil. Um, and then, you know, you've got on your plate five to six servings of vegetables. So, um, but um, there's a great vegan moussaka in, that I make a lot in the Vegan Amatang cookbook, which has, you know, tons of, it's like a layered vegetable dish with tomato sauce and a tofu pine nut um, bechamel sauce. So you can just, you can just do anything with plants if you get creative and it's hard. I mean, to, it takes time to think outside the box and learn, but once you make that shift that anything you love can be turned plant-based and that it's gonna be helping your body and taste more delicious and be more satiating, like I think it like opens a whole new world and it's brought me more joy than I could like ever possibly imagine. Because mm -hmm. every day is like an experiment and like how can I optimize, you know, my own health and learn more about this stuff to help my patients and every bite becomes exciting so I don't know I just get really jazzed about it so no I think that's great those are some good ones I haven't I've seen the vegan reach up but I haven't seen the vegan Omnicon <laughs> to check that one out so I will we love Indian food so my husband's Filipino so we, we do like all sorts of ethnic foods so and you're in Portland Portland is like so vegan friendly Jeez. it is like the vegan capital of the world it's yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Of I course, a, I was just when I was there. Huh? Oh, well, if anyone who's listening comes to Portland, please email me because I have a vegan restaurant spreadsheet that I'm happy to share with anyone. And I've, oh. I've been to, I feel like I've been to all of them and I've put my favorite dishes and stuff. And so it's oh, uh, nice. Passion. Very nice. You should put that on your website as being, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That should be give me your email to download this up, you know, download where you're coming to visit and where you uh, should be eating. And my favorite meals kind of be a food, <laughs> a food guide and Great idea. very good. That's awesome. So yeah. <laughs> this has been really fun. I love seeing young people when I say that because I'm a lot older than you. So I look back and I think, wow, if I was 30, what would, you know, would have been so nice to think about this or even younger you know, when I was still, when I, before I had kids, um, cause I, I had three by the time I was 27. Oh, wow. 25, 27. Yeah. So my, my middle one just turned 23 yesterday. 
and Emily's in medical school 25 and Gabe is be 21 in October. What's cool is that they grew up though. They were teenagers. We went on a plant-based diet. And so my husband and I, you know, he came along as we moved in that direction, did very well, but the kids are all adopted this plant-based diet now. So this is really fun to see them. They'll start their life out as an, in adulthood at a much lower risk for chronic disease than their, than their other cohorts and cohorts. So, you know, I worry about, I'm really using the statistics with patients because, you know, 18 to 35 year olds have the highest risk for colon cancer. Now double Mm. the risk of colon cancer, quadruple the risk of rectal cancer. Like, this is my children. They have a higher risk of colon cancer than my generation. Yeah. What in the world? And so what are we doing to kill off our children? I mean, so I always encourage parents to also approach this and, you know, don't be afraid to put these foods in front of them and say, you have to try it. This is what you get to eat. <laughs> you know? So um, I think we had talked a little bit about that before on the phone, but it's just so important that we, um, make children aware of the foods and learn because they're curious, take, you know, take advantage of this curiosity and start them young and, um, you will have only good things come. know that statistic about colon cancer. That's devastating. It's also devastating in the face of what we know about what predisposes to colon cancer, low fiber and is now being classified as a carcinogen, you know, like by the world health organization and mm-hmm. the information is out there and we have, you know, the average, I think person is getting less than 15 grams of fiber a day when they should be getting mm-hmm. 35 to 45 oh, indigenous I, cultures, hundred, you know? And oh it's, yeah. I don't know how they eat a hundred. I'm lucky if I get 75 and I'm eating beans and vegetables and fruit. I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm eating all day, but yeah. what's funny. So with my own patients now, what I've done is I was like, your new goal is to make sure you're not fiber deficient. I need you eating 50 grams of fiber a day, yes. you know? And it's so funny because they, they go, oh, okay. At first, I don't think they understand what that means. And so what's fun is they're writing this down and now they're starting to understand. It's like, you want to decrease your risk for these things or do you want it 50 grams of fiber per day? Once you get that in you, then we can talk about other foods. But even then, I think they just will feel so good once they get start eating this way and feel the energy and see the difference. And, you know, like you said, the skin and all these diseases, I call them canaries in the coal mine. It's like, do you think you were meant to be ill? I mean, did did nature make us, you know, two thirds of us to be overweight or obese and ill and walking around in pain? I don't think so. Let's look at the rest of the animals in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. And I love bringing it back to parenting because it, it does create that sense of urgency of like, mm-hmm. you know, as a parent, you know, part of the job is to keep your child safe and um, develop them into good adults One, you know, help them develop into people who are going to be responsible citizens and adults. And like <laughs> health is part of that, you know, and now right. we have the data about how to stay healthy. So how are we going to then start incorporating this more into like standard you know, parenting practice and, right. um, yeah. And, uh, I was just at a talk, um, there's a functional medicine physician meetup group that meets once a month in Portland. And we had a speaker nice. who's an expert of the, in the microbiome and was talking about that. There's this really, this sort of like immunologic window of the first from, from conception to two years of life when sort of the immune system is 
set up for like long-term um, mm. and um, why, you know, breastfeeding is so important. There's the oligosaccharides in the breast milk that are, you know, essentially fiber that are feeding the beneficial micro, you know, gut bacteria. Um, and um, that, that, you know, that will set a patient up for diseases potentially 50 years or prevention of diseases, 50, 75 years down the road. Mm. And so about this early childhood food exposure um, and, you know, people transitioning off breast milk. I don't, I don't have strong opinions. You know, I, now we're including, I'm not a parent, but it was just really interesting to think about that first two years of life, how breastfeeding may be affecting the microbiome, which is affecting mm-hmm. our immune system, which is affecting chronic disease down the road. And yeah, absolutely. Transitioning when you're transitioning off breast milk, like including the, those healthy fibers in the diet of even a one-year-old or a mm-hmm. old and um, that it is an investment in potentially decades and decades mm-hmm. of health. So it's mm-hmm. an exciting, such an exciting time, I think, to be mm-hmm. you know, in medicine and how we're going to apply these things and to uh, spread these messages more widely is so exciting to me. And your podcast is doing an amazing job at doing so. <laughs> Thank you. It's, it's funny that, you know, you don't have to be a parent to care about children and the health of, of, of little people. Um, but it was really interesting. I read there was a poem um, or it was a, I guess it was more of just a story and a narrative of a woman. Her name was Nicole Johnson and someone had shared it on their Facebook page and it was about feeling invisible as a mother. And basically, um, you know, when you bird these little creatures, you don't realize what all is involved. And as you go from the breastfeeding and feeding and the growing and they're crawling and they're going to school and you're going through all this, there really turns into this moment where you feel, you know, you love your children, you would do anything for them, but there is a, there are many moments that go um, unrecognized. They don't need to be recognized, but you know, that's, that's why you should love your mother on mother's day and share, you know, share how wonderful that they've done for you, those sacrifices. But it's really interesting because she really hit, you know, she would walk into the living room and say, turn off the TV and nobody would respond. And then she would take her little five-year-old to school and her teacher goes, who's with you? And she goes, he goes, nobody. And he goes, she, he's five. Why would he say I'm nobody? You know, those are these things, things. But it was really interesting what turned this around was her thought process was she had gone to a gathering with some friends and she was feeling really low because she just felt invisible. And because once you start dwelling on something, you know, it's kind of like you buy a new car and you're like, oh, wow, there's another one. Just like one I bought. They just bought that one. Or you buy a new dress. Like, why are you wearing my dress? You know, there's you, your mind starts focusing on those things. So once you've come to this thought that you are invisible, you're going to start seeing other circumstances and maybe true or not true, your, your, your perception will be, you're more invisible than you were before. Anyway, so she's at this group and in this group, there's other women. And one of her friends had just came back from England and they were talking about this wonderful trip and everything. And then she said, her friend turned to her and she goes, I brought you back a special gift. And she handed her this book on the cathedrals of Europe. And what was amazing, she's like, I didn't understand why (laughs) <laughs> she would bring me back on cathedrals and she was, you know, a, a faith-based person. But what was interesting, she was, I began to understand it when I read the inscription to, to me from my friend. And she goes, this was an honor of all the amazing things that you are building when nobody sees. 
And so what it was is going back to the cathedrals, how they may take a hundred years or more to build by many, many people, builders who go unseen and unheard and unknown throughout history, but they partook in building this amazing thing called a cathedral. And it goes, you know, as a mother, you're building cathedrals and you're building that emotional side. So that's what we think of when we're, we're investing in children, like you said, to raise our children into responsible adults. So that's why I've always told my kids, I said, you better be not embarrassing me because we have the same listening. I'm telling you right now, <laughs> it's like I'm raising you to be people that people will like. <laughs> Don't embarrass me, you know, just teasing them, but well, sort of not teasing them. But anyway, you know, those are the type of things that we think about as behavior and are they successful on this. But we have to think about this cathedral, mm. this temple, right? So we, I think that is such an important part of that cathedral is this foundation. So to make this cathedral even more spectacular and beautiful in the future is really building what's going on inside and feeding that mind, those cells. So when they get older, they're not facing chronic disease and they're not distracted from their purpose in life. That cathedral will just be even more beautiful and enjoyable to partake in for themselves and for others. So that's how I see it. It was really an interesting and beautiful story, but that transition, but it's, there's more to the cathedral than what you're seeing from the outside and their successes checkoffs and whether they're good people, but what are we building inside? And so that's that investment too. So I love that story. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. and, and thinking about all the different elements that build that foundation and, mm -hmm. you know, emotional support, maybe one of them and creating a, you know, as low good stress coping mechanism so that, it, you know, you can thrive physiologically and not be constantly battling stress hormone activation, but then food is of course going to be a big part of that foundation as well. Right. So let's, let's think of a perfect example of why I went on a plant-based diet was I had a patient back in Colorado, um, who came to me, she was in her early thirties or mid thirties. And she had said, you know, Dr. Marvis, meat and dairy upset my stomach. I said, stop eating meat and dairy, come back in 30 days. I didn't, you know, click in my head. This was plants. I knew she'd be fine. She'd go eat food that was not, you know, or, or animal origin and she would be okay. But she came back in 30 days and brought her daughter with her who was 16 at the time and went on the diet with her mom. She pulled herself off two ADD meds in that 30 days. And she brought her to the appointment because she was like, you need to tell Dr. Marvis what you did. And then we got to figure out why that happened because I need to know. And she's like, why was she able to do that? And I said, I don't know, but that's just the coolest thing I've ever heard. So let's talk about what were you eating? She goes, well, I didn't eat meat or dairy. I was like, I know, but what did you eat? Yeah. And we sat for half an hour and just talked. It was beans and whole grains and you know, fruits and vegetables and nuts and seeds, and they were eating this and that. And here I am thinking, here's a child that's been on medication for years, um, one, to help her focus, and two, she had to come to the belief that that was her, that was her, part of her, that she would require medication for the rest of her life to function in our society. That is a problem. Um, and now we've, we've become accustomed to illness and chronic disease and lack of focus. But when you're looking at this really quick transition, and this kid made this discovery on her own, that was even more remarkable for me. So then that's when I started diving into the data and all the, all the seven years ago. And it didn't take long to make that transition, especially because I had a lupus patient I tested on within the next few weeks. And it was a really cool story. But those are the type of things 
that I see and I'm like, we really need to pay attention to our children, our school lunch program, our food deserts, or, you know, someone I, I had just interviewed, um, Audrey Sanchez from balanced.org. She said, you know, their, their food apartheid because their system set up to take advantage of, of people who don't have access. And so you put fast food in these neighborhoods, you know, they're going to go to them because they don't have any other choice. And so yeah. these are some really interesting things we have to look at and reflect on our own, our own families, our own personal decisions, but also what are we doing in our communities, on a local, yeah. state, and national level, which leads to international. I mean, you got to think about all these different things. Um, it really is remarkable. All, like you said, the systems approach. This is a functional, functional way, functional medicine approach um, to looking at everything. It's just you know, the system-based approach. And um, we are not isolated beings. <laughs> Our, what we do and make decisions affects many, many things. So just well, like the social contagion, right? You smile, you smile, right? Yes. Um, I think what you were bringing up about, you know, diet and brain health is also just, mm. that is endlessly fascinating. And I think like one of the most compelling uh, things to get people excited about, you know, how, what they're putting in their mouth and how it's affecting their daily life. And we're starting to learn more and more how much chronic, you know, neurologic disease and, um, is, is affected by diet. And I think it's fascinating, especially when you think about it for kids and kids are eating such different diets than they ever were historically. And we're seeing this huge rise in childhood mental illness and different um, behavioral disorders. And the link between diet, I think is fairly clear. Um, and stories like the one you just mentioned are so compelling. Um, and, you know, it's like these little brains that, you know, they don't have the ability to choose to go to the store and choose the foods they're eating. And so there's really, it's the onus on us as the medical community and parent, you know, parents to, to help, um, you know, shepherd kids into life in a healthy way. And, and something about the brain, I think just makes it extra compelling because it's mm -hmm. like, that's their lived experience. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, that side of this whole functional medicine thing is really part of what got me so, so excited about this field. And there, I think there are five books that I would recommend to anyone that, Please, sure. yeah. So that got me just like, I have to be practicing with food as medicine. So one is Dr. Mark Hyman's, um, the Ultramind solution. Um, two is, uh, the addiction spectrum. Um, I'm going to forget some of the authors, but, um, uh, let's see, I can, uh, that's okay. They can look it up. Yeah. Addiction spectrum. Okay. Um, three is the depression cure. Four is the brain body diet by Sarah Gottfried. And then the fifth one is, um, Terry Wall's book about the walls protocol. And so if you're just like interested in brain health and the relationship with food, like those books I read over the course of, you know, just during residency. And it made me realize that food is the foundation of our brain's ability to function. And we, it's such an interesting, almost like philosophic issue too, because we think of like our personality and our behavior as kind of inherent to who we are, but we're starting to learn more that like, it's actually very much dependent on what we're putting into our body and those choices. And then when you add the microbiome dimension and that 
about 90% of our neurotransmitters are made in the gut and travel to our brain, it's like, what? You know, this is, is our brain controlled by our gut and our bacteria and, and that the bacteria are controlled by food. And it's, to me, it is so empowering because it's like, you know, brain fog, MS, cognitive decline, Alzheimer's. Oh, sorry. I want, I would add Bredesen as a sixth book into that. So the end of Alzheimer's, Dr. Oh. Bredesen's book. Um, it's so empowering because there is, these are things that we feel like are afflicting us, depression, anxiety, brain fog, and there is so much that you can do. And there are a lot of forces out there that don't want us to do these holistic sort of like foundational interventions like nutrition, because that stops us from buying medications. And that's not good for a lot of people with, you know, interests in the economics of pharmaceuticals. And so, but I just feel truly like it, like it's my life mission. And I know other people in this community feel that way to really spread this information. There's so, it's so empowering. There's so much that you can do with what's on the tip of your fork. And, um, you know, going back to talking about brain health and like with the migraine patient that I had, one thing I remember reading about was this whole oxidative stress theory of migraine and that migraines may actually be a adaptive response to oxidative stress. So you get oxidative stress and lots of free radical generation that is often uh, promoted by foods, unhealthy foods that pr promote basically free radicals. We know that meat and advanced glycation end products can create a lot of free radicals in the body and that's oxidative stress. And plant foods that have antioxidants can quench those free radicals before they can go on and, and cause tissue damage. Mm -hmm. An ion channel in the pain sensitive um, cells, the nociceptors in the brain, which I think are called um, TRPA1 uh, ion channels, and they are actually activated by oxidative stress and free radicals and will generate pain um, in, the, in the brain and um, also generate neuroinflammation when activated. So the thought is maybe this was evolved to tell our bodies when we're eating things that are dangerous for us. Mm. Be like, stop, you know, just like putting your hand on the fire, activates mm. receptors in your hand and tells you to take your hand off the fire. And it, it goes back to this idea of like symptoms and disease are signals from the body that something is wrong. Mm. And it is not something about our character. It's not something about who we are as a person. It's a signal. It is information that there's dysfunction and that idea with migraine. And I think Dr. Bredesen, um, talks a lot about the, the pathophysiology of Alzheimer's and a little bit about how the formation of these plaques in the brain, like, um, the amyloid beta plaques may have sort of like an underlying evolutionary, like it, um, reason of why those were created to almost protect the brain. Um, and there is a, uh, from like infectious disease and thing, and I, I, I don't, I don't remember it well enough to go into the detail, but it's really, I think, fun to think about some of these diseases that we're seeing chronic diseases of the brain and how we kind of evolved to use these as protective mechanisms. But now that our bodies are being exposed to so many new inflammatory threats that over the past hundred years that never existed before all these synthetic products and, um, mm -hmm. foods are eating, it's all now going amiss, but because we know a lot of this, we can, we can do something about it. Like it's very exciting, but, right. um, I could, I could just talk about this with you all day. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Absolutely. I, you're exactly right. Um, we have a choice three times a day or, or less or more, however many times you're eating is, you know, is, are you like, you know, I can't remember who, who coined the phrase, but you know, you're either eating, feeding your disease or you're feeding your health with every bite. So it, it is a choice and you're exactly right. We, <laughs> so no, I think that's great. So, so Dr. Casey, share with us one last bit of advice you would have for someone who's maybe teetering on, you know, exploring alternative methods um, for looking at disease, you know, how they would approach their illness, or maybe someone who's considering now, maybe considering a whole food plant-based diet, because maybe something that we've said tickles their ear. What would be that bit of advice or something else that you, you feel burning in your heart to share? Hmm. Um, I would say, you know, the body, our human body is a precious machine that, you know, has evolved over millions of years to function optimally in this world and, um, what you're feeling and what you're suffering from are signals that something is going wrong with that machine. And I would just encourage you to find someone who's going to be a detective with you to figure out really what is going on and that there is so, so much you can do that is simple and, um, that can, can make, that can help, I think. Um, and in terms of more, and I just, to make people, you know, understand that, you know, there is to feel empowered that um, hope is never lost. Um, and, you know, you can't always fix everything to 100%, but you can certainly move things in the right direction. And there are just a huge community of people out there, like both of us, who really want to be um, guides um, and partners on that journey. Um, and uh, from a practical level, in terms of getting into more of a plant-based lifestyle, my first recommendation would be... Um, you know, go buy a bunch of organic canned beans from the store in non-BPA cans um, and try with almost everything you're eating to just sprinkle some beans in it because um, they hide in almost anything. And uh, fiber, I think, is a great way to get started on healing um, and going slow is good. Um, and uh one can of beans has almost 30 grams of fiber. So if you can get one can in every day, you're like well on your way to better health. So that's just one small, small tip. But, right. um, and if you have a little GI gas and upset, just go a little bit slower, you'll adjust. Um, but yeah. yeah. Definitely. I think that's fabulous. So you are an absolute delight and I'm sure everyone's going to enjoy this conversation because it was really fun. <laughs> and they definitely need to check out so CaseyMeansMD.com, there'll be links listed below. And hopefully you will have visitors not only from Portland, but from other states as well. Um, not far from Seattle, you've got all over California on the West Coast. So that's fantastic. So I hope your, your practice grows and thrives. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome.